So how is everybody? Awesome. I give it a four. <laughs> out of? Out of three or ten? Know. I'll figure that out later. Ever elusive fifth star? <laughs> four stars used to be the gold standard. I, I think there's been some inflation there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> stars inflation. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on iOS developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average iOS developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $2,000 signing bonus as a thank you for using it. But if you use the iFreaks link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept the job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash iFreaks. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 119 of the iFreaks show. This week on our panel, we have Alondo Brewington. Greetings from North Carolina. James Uber. Hello from Minneapolis. Mike Ash. Hello from Fairfax, Virginia. I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.TV, and this week we have a special guest, and that is Neil Ford. Hello from Atlanta. Do you want to introduce yourself, Neil? Sure. My name is Neil Ford. I am a director, software architect, and meme wrangler at ThoughtWorks, which is an international consultancy. Uh, We do lots of software development for lots of different kinds of people. Very cool. We brought you on today to talk about ambient information and the Apple Watch. Yep. And I asked you about it before the show, and you said that ambient information is part of how you think about the Apple Watch. So you kind of want to lead us that way? Yep. So I said one of my titles at ThoughtWorks is a meme wrangler, and ThoughtWorks is one of those companies where you get to pick whichever title you want. Some of them are reserved, like chief scientist or CEO, but pretty much any title that you want to come up with, you can. So I've met the person at ThoughtWorks whose title is Seat Warmer on his business card, so he doesn't hand those business cards out much. But this is one of those self-fulfilling prophecy kind of things because my first set of business cards was just software architect because that reflects kind of the work that I do at ThoughtWorks. But then I gradually became a director, and I realized that in a lot of companies, software architect means post-useful, that you spend more time in Visio (laughs) or OmniGraffle than you do actually writing software. I've worked for those companies. Yeah, so it's it's quite common. And so I changed my business cards at one point to just be Meme Wrangler. And for the if you're not familiar with the cultural reference there, this is something that Richard Dawkins came up with, this concept of a meme. It's a viral unit of thought. So a meme is to a thought as a gene is to DNA. And wrangle, of course, has two useful meanings in this context, wrangling as in herding and also wrangling as in uh, facilitating arguments between people. And so Meme Wrangler is a much more abstract, much more ThoughtWorks kind of title. The only downside of that is when you hand your business card to people, people either say, oh, that's cool, or what does this mean? And so now I've kind of compromised. I have all three of those titles on a business card. But this is one of those self-fulfilling prophecy things, because when I came up with that title, I don't know that I was actually doing a lot of meme wrangling. But over time, I've been doing more and more of that, which is go out into the marketplace and try to find not just the thing that's happening, but the real meaning behind the thing that's happening. And this is the very long intro in this idea about ambient information and the Apple Watch. So here I'm going to post a a, a puzzle for you guys. So it's 1999, and you need to travel to Chicago on a business trip next week. And you need to find out what the weather is going to be like in Chicago next week. How can you do that? It's going to be windy. Well, you can can (laughs) kind of guess that. Beyond that, how are you going to find out in 1999 what the Chicago weather is next week? 
Is it Yahoo, cheating if Yahoo, I say Yahoo that? I, yeah, use a weather website. Well, 1999, not really many websites around, so much tougher to do that. We're talking You're paying like here. $3 per byte on America Online at that point. Exactly. <laughs> well, even, that's uh, why I call it cheating because I was living in a college dorm with Ethernet access. So. Well, let's say then, let's go even further. Let's say it's 1990 and you're traveling to Chicago and you need to get weather. How are you going to find out? I think I'd ask my dad. So in 1990. You call information over there? You could call information. There's also the Weather Channel, remember. You used oh, to yeah. do national forecasts every half hour or so so that you could watch half hour of the Weather Channel. The point of this is that as phones have gotten more and more ubiquitous, more and more powerful, that that kind of information, like weather in a foreign city, has become more and more ambient over time. It's more and more accessible. So now, of course, it's trivially easy to find out what the weather's going to be like in Chicago. I can pull my phone out. I can either go do a search for Chicago or I can add it to my favorite city so I can always get a Chicago. Chicago forecast. And so the general trend of that kind of information over time is becoming more and more available instantly, more and more ambient. And that's really what the Apple Watch does, is take some of that information that's still kind of locked on your phone and making it that much more ambient. And so that's really the idea of customizing the watch face is finding the things that you really want to be the most kind of ambient information so that you can get it instantly versus something that you have to put any kind of effort into. Because going after information, any kind of of effort that you require to go after that information represents a cost of that information. And so even on your phone, weather has a cost to get it for Chicago or whatever city you're in, and the watch is making that a lot more ambient. And I think that's the overall trend in computing in general, is to make information that people care about much more accessible and available. So that, for me, is the really cool thing about the Apple Watch, is that lots of things are a lot more ambient. So for example, right now in Atlanta, it's 82 degrees and sunny. The high today is going to be 82, and it looks like the sunset tonight's at 8.21 p.m., and I got all that right off my watch. So in other words, what you're saying is instead of this information being something that you actually have to go out of your way to retrieve, even just pulling out your phone and opening the app, it's ambient because you can just glance at your watch or you know maybe tap an app to get the information off your watch. My point is that the spectrum is getting better over time, that the cost of getting Chicago weather in 1990 was extraordinarily high. It's really small now, but when you have something like the Apple Watch, it's even smaller. And if you project into the future, we're going to find ways to make that even more ambient over time so that even the effort of looking down at your watch is going to become more and more of a cost to get to some sort of information. So this has a lot of really interesting implications. So weather is an obvious one where because you can customize your watch face to get that kind of information. But let me give you another great example of the benefit of having ambient information. So I travel a lot for business, which means I end up walking around in foreign cities a lot, and very frequently I'm looking for a restaurant or a theater or something like that. There is no more powerful way to advertise yourself as a tourist and therefore a target for all sorts of shenanigans to walk around with your head buried in an, a map application on a phone somewhere in a foreign city. Mm, yeah. But the, but the beautiful thing about the Apple Watch is once you've established where you want to go, that information now becomes ambient because your watch now tells you as you come to a turn, it vibrates to let you know you need to turn. You can glance at your watch and tell, oh, I need to turn this way versus this way. And so directions, particularly in foreign cities now, has become more ambient. And that's actually a safety thing. If you're walking around in a foreign city, you're looking at your phone too much. That's a, obviously a bad thing. I definitely see what you mean there. That's one of my favorite features of the Apple Watch. I actually get that benefit while driving as well because I've gotten to the point now where I typically tune out the uh, voice directions. I've just gotten so used to it, but it's really hard to ignore the tapping on my wrist, so I, I miss fewer exits now. 
So another thing that I do, another good example of that is when I get in my car and I'm going places where I know the directions to, I go ahead and tell my watch to give me directions to that place. Now, there's an interesting little user experience thing going on here that if you just ask for directions on your watch, but don't open your phone, it won't open the map on your phone and start giving you voice directions. It'll only oh, give directions on your wrist. But if you start it on your phone, it'll automatically hand it off to your wrist. Now, if you start it on your wrist and then at some point open your phone, it'll take over and start giving you directions. But the beautiful thing about that is even if I know where I'm going, it will give me an ETA of when I'm going to get there. And I kind of like knowing the ETA. And again, that just becomes an ambient piece of information. It's trivial just to tell my watch via Siri directions to Atlanta Hartsfield Airport. And now it'll pop up and give me an ETA taking into account traffic and all the other stuff. Information that's normally locked on my phone and, in fact, would be too dangerous to look at too much while driving. But now it's available. So this is a show for iOS developers as opposed to, you know, where I think we're all gizmo people and you know we like our gadgets and we like stuff that integrates well with our iphone and the apple watch obviously does that very well so if i am an app developer how do i identify that i should have an apple watch based on you know what information should be ambient and which information shouldn't well that's the thing is that different information is important to be ambient for different people. So I very much view the Apple Watch, it's very much a 1.0 thing. So one of the things I've discovered with the Apple Watch is occasionally it'll forget how to do stuff, but you reboot it and it'll remember. So for example, boarding passes disappeared for a while and I was kind of puzzling over it. Then I thought, oh, it's a computer, I should reboot it. And when I rebooted it, boarding passes started showing up again. So Like Windows. Exactly. Uh, Very much like a 1.0 anything. In fact, if I had my druthers, I would have probably let it cook a little longer before releasing it. Maybe one more beta cycle, because I have had to restart it a couple of times. Not because it crashed, but because weird things started happening. But uh, it's very much like the iPhone 1. Remember when the iPhone 1 came out, you couldn't write custom apps for it. You just had the apps that Apple gave you. That's not true with the Apple Watch, of course, but it is true that only certain things you can put, for example, directly on the watch face. They're controlling that. I think over time, they're going to loosen up a lot more about that. And so now applications can start deciding to let people make their information more ambient. So the real challenge, I think, for iOS developers is twofold. One is what kind of information is in your application that people would find more valuable if it were ambient and much more easy to get to? And then the second challenge is how do you take the very constrained user interface of the watch and actually make a useful UI out of it. And that's really a good study, I think, in building useful UIs in very constrained places because they've done a really good job on several of the apps on the phone, like the weather app is great. If you have weather and you click through and actually open the weather app, what you find is a circle that has the current time and then 10 hours into the future. And then it shows you the sunlight and sunset and then you tap it once and it shows you what the temperature is going to be. And you tap it again and it shows you rain precipitation chances on that same time scale. And so uh, I think it's a good example of finding a way to give you really useful information in a very, very constrained UI. Yeah, there so, aren't a whole lot of things I use my watch for, but some things that are really valuable are like the exercise app. If I'm riding my bike, I'd like to know how fast I'm going because yeah. I get an average time when I'm going someplace, but I'm at stoplights and slowing down for people and passing. But it's nice to know, okay, I can look down at my wrist versus, you know, pulling it out of my pocket, going however fast I'm going and dropping it and splashing my phone all over the, you know, the road well, there. But 
I think you've touched on the mother load of potential applications to take advantage of ambient information on the Apple Watch because I, too, use it a lot when I'm exercising. I like when I'm on the elliptical. I like having it because it gives you more or less real-time pulse so you can tell how actively you're working out. But again, that's a 1.0 thing. There are other fitness trackers that give you much better kind of health analysis based on just sensors on your wrist. But because this is 1.0, I think there's a, a kind of a perfect storm coming up here of aging baby boomers who are kind of a little bit hypochondriac about their health. And of course, they're going to start having health issues. And now you're getting these devices, which can do much more sophisticated health tracking, etc. I think that very quickly, you'll find a category of applications that let you see all sorts of health statistics in an ambient way so that you can see, for example, blood insulin level or, you know, what your current blood pressure is or, you know, just some general kind of information that you could use as useful feedback to say, oh, my pulse rate is really high right now. Am I stressed? Am I overtrained? You know, that kind of information is going to become a lot more available and therefore a lot more useful and actionable. So can you speak to like, I'm thinking in terms of a lot of this ambient information, but one of the things that I do find even in this first version of the Apple Watch is notification fatigue, that there are so many apps that do have either an extension or an Apple Watch app that constantly notify me to the point that it becomes annoying. Well, I think the first exercise, certainly the first exercise I went through is going and killing all those things off. So I was very cavalier about notifications on my phone because like, yeah, you know, who really cares? But getting an Apple Watch makes you really go learn that notification screen on your iPhone well. And it takes a couple of weeks to go in and kill the noisy ones. But I've pretty much got it down now where it it only really uh, tells me something that I want to know. I get very few false positive notifications now, but boy, you have to be diligent on top of that. So from an app developer's perspective, what is a way that I could actually make sure that my app's notifications aren't one of the ones that get on the chopping block? Well, I think the the biggest problem people have is over-notification. They're too anxious to tell you stuff. They're too anxious to interact with you to show you that they're there. I think probably uh, Unix is a good philosophy on this, that no news is good news. So only tell me stuff if you really need to tell me stuff. I actually think that the Apple fitness stuff is a little too chatty for my taste because if you exercise, then it'll immediately come back and tell you, oh, congratulations, you've met your exercise goal for the day. It's like, yeah, okay, yeah, I was just exercising. I know I've met my exercise goal. So some of that stuff I think is a little chattier than it could be. But I think it really comes down to personal preference too. I think some people like more interaction than others. So I think it's important as you build applications to think about what is the absolute stuff I have to notify people about and can I let them opt out of some of those things and and be as quiet as possible for some users as well. Because I think a lot of power users are going to want to really tone down the things that give them notifications just because they have lots and lots of things notifying them and they really want to focus in on the things that are important that they want to get notifications from. Yeah, it's a a tough balance because you might have your marketing team doing some A-B testing. Like, you know, if we send a bunch of notifications on sales, sales, you know, we sell things and we make Mm -hmm. more money while the rest of your user base is getting mad. But it makes sense to, you know, provide value. Does the user care about what we're telling them? I'm just telling them a bunch of random stuff. I mean, if you tell me something useful and it shows up on my wrist, okay, cool. I'm I'm happy with it and I'll keep it for that other thing. But if you you spam me every every day with a 10% off sale, you know, that's going away. It's going away pretty quick. I think your app might be getting deleted. I think a good rule of thumb is for every notification you give somebody on their wrist, how many people are you going to annoy by that? How many people are going to think that's too much and try to err on the side of too little information rather than too much? 
And I think most people, to your point, are going to err on the too much side just because it's a shiny new toy. You know, I want to I want to show you as much as I can and interact with you as much as I can. But the real value comes in less interaction, but really focused interaction. Yeah, and this is pretty much the wild west of you know how to notify things on your wrist. You yeah, know, so we don't even know the best way to do it yet. We're, we're yeah, figuring I, that out as an industry. It took us a long time to figure out how to build really effective apps and particular games on iOS devices. Uh, you know, one of the things I think was really freeing of iOS was it was the first platform in many, many years that broke away from the standard kind of WIMP concept of when you, uh, Windows icons, a mouse and pointer. And it took a long time for people to kind of assimilate that, hey, we can build apps in completely different ways. And I think the Apple Watch is another one of those opportunities, just like the iPhone was, to come up with really cool ways to visualize information. There's another cool app that I use called Dark Skies that's trying to do hyper-local forecasts. So they're trying to do a forecast with like within several miles of where you are. So And they have an interesting little UI that tries to predict the next few hours as to whether things are going to rain or not. I think uh, an example of getting a UI just about perfect is the way the Apple Watch does Apple Pay. That could not be nicer. Once you get everything loaded in Apple Pay, it's a double click and you hold your phone up to a sensor and you've paid for it. And I try to use that every chance I get just because it is so frictionless. Of course, they had to build a special mode in the watch, a special double-click mode to allow that to happen. But I can't imagine paying for something being any less friction than that. One of the interesting challenges I think Apple has is this is the first time they've created a fashion accessory. Uh, this is not just something you carry around. This is something that already existed out in the world as a fashion accessory. So I think there's a lot of speculation about are people going to accept things like you know computers on your wrist or is that going to get a backlash? It's going to be interesting to see if they can co-opt your wrist to, you know, create a new platform for people to uh, consume iOS devices or not. I think they've got a reasonably good chance. I have no idea what Apple Watch sales are or anything like that. I haven't looked into that. But I know that anecdotally, the several people I know that were kind of on the fence have gotten it. They've all been pleasantly surprised at how much more they ended up using it than they thought they would. Yeah, I was on the fence. I actually, I backed the Pebble Time Kickstarter, so... I'm probably going to be getting one of those, but I definitely want to get an Apple Watch at some point and just see how the experience compares. I'm also curious about ambient control as opposed to ambient information. You've talked about notifications and things, but I'm aware that, for example, on the Apple Watch, I believe you can stop play and pause music or podcasts or what have you. Uh Are other applications taking advantage of ambient control? And do you think that's a different user experience with different constraints than ambient information? I think it is. And that's another killer use that I have. I've recently gotten, I mentioned I travel a lot and I hate wires. So I recently got a Bluetooth headset, which is really nice, uh, that works really well. And the combination of the phone plus the Bluetooth headset plus the watch is the ideal listening experience because the watch lets you change the volume and go, you know, and go forward, back and et cetera. So that's a good example of that kind of ambient control. There's a lot of other useful little ambient control things too, like timers. I make a coffee with a French press, so I constantly have to have five minutes time. I do all that with my watch now. I just tell my watch, set a timer for five minutes, and Siri takes over and does a five-minute timer for me. So I think that most of the ambient control is going to happen through Siri because the form factor is just too small to do anything really input intensive. But with Siri, you can get a lot of stuff done. 
So, you know, for example, texting, that's a classic kind of interactive experience. So when you get a text on the Apple Watch, you get the text and you can read it and it gives you a canned set of answers you can reply to like yes or no or okay or, you know, I'll call you later. But you can also just kick into Siri and let Siri do voice recognition to say whatever you want the return message to be. And so I think what the watch is going to do is, so I think most people who don't like Siri, never used it enough to get it trained to the point where you can do really useful things with it. I think the same is going to be true for the watch. And just like getting a watch makes you professional about the way you handle notifications, I think getting a watch is going to make you professional about the way you handle things like Siri as well. But here is the ultra, the ultimate kind of ambient manipulation of information. And this is probably my favorite overall thing that I've wired up together with the Apple Watch and uh, my iPhone. So I'm a a big proponent of the kind of getting things done style of personal information management. Not the, I just like the ideas. I'm not really bought into, you know, the whole kind of religion of GTD, but the ideas are really good. This idea of getting ideas out of your head as quickly as possible. And I use OmniFocus, uh, which runs on the Mac and the phone and the iPad. And OmniFocus has really good Siri integration. So in OmniFocus, what you can do is wire up OmniFocus to listen to one of your reminder inboxes. And so you can say, for example, Remember to call Charles, or you can say to your phone, add remember to call Charles to my inbox list. And that will set a reminder that goes into your inbox list, which will automatically get sucked into OmniFocus. And because that works through Siri, I can now tell my watch, remember to call Charles, add it to my inbox list. And now, as soon as I say it into my watch, it appears on my phone, on my iPad, on my computer. And so from a getting things done standpoint, that is the ultimate. I'm driving, and I've I've done this a hundred times since I got my watch. I'm driving somewhere. I remember something that I need to handle. I hit the button to put it into Siri mode. I tell it uh, and add it to my inbox list. And then when I get to my desk, all those things that I told my watch in the car are nicely there in my PIM, ready to go into my information system. So you bring up an interesting point there. We're talking about ambient control in that particular example. With the phone, I can pick the phone up and I can control it with one hand. I'm finding that with the watch, I still have to use my right hand. The watch is on my left wrist. So it seems like it's limiting to use in a situation where I'm not just walking. I agree. It's very limiting, which is why I think voice control is ultimately going to be the way. I think this is going to be the thing that drives them to make Siri better and better and better is to allow you to do more and more voice control stuff with it so that you don't have to touch it much at all. I can tell you, though, that for some people, you know, they're like, Siri, call grandma. And Siri comes back and says, I found five burger places near you. Yeah, there's a great uh, Big Bang Theory where the the guy that has a speech impediment can't get Siri to understand him and work with him. So I can uh, I can sympathize with that. Are there ways to get it better? I mean, you did mention training Siri. Can you actually do that? Yeah, Siri gets better the more you use it. So that's the thing is the more you use it, the more it learns the way you speak words, the more you correct it, the more it remembers those corrections, the more it learns that grandma actually means, you know, Bertha Smith on, you know, 1250 uh, whatever road. So the more you use it, the smarter it gets. Uh, Siri is not stateless. Siri is stateful for a particular person. So it remembers things from previous conversations and uh, tries to make its interaction better. It's kind of like when people are typing on an iPhone I, and they say, oh, my accuracy is terrible, I tell them, speed up, don't slow down. Because by speeding up, you get the autocorrect predictive stuff kicking in because you're getting in the neighborhood and very often you end up with better results than if you try to go really slow and deliberate. 
So when you correct Siri, I just did a Google search. It looks like you can actually swipe up or swipe down and then type in what you actually said, and then Siri gets better that way too. Yep. It takes a little bit of deliberate work, but... It's just like tuning your notifications, but ultimately what you want to get out of that extra work that you're putting into it. So this would be a bad bargain if putting that work in didn't get you useful benefits out. I can remember back in the while ago, reading to several different Dragon pieces of software for like a half an hour at a time, just so I could it can understand me and type. And I never felt that all that reading to it gave me value back for the effort that I put into it. But I think that notifications and, and Siri training does pay back the effort you put into it. So one of the things I talked about, I wrote a blog entry about ambient information. And one of the things that I talked about as I was talking about ambient information is Google Glass, which is the obvious other major player in this space. And uh, there's a disclaimer here. I've never used Google Glass, but I've hung around a few people that have Google Glass on and wearing them. And most of those people have made me much less likely to go and get Google Glass because I think it is the opposite of ambient information. It's intrusive information. You're used to looking at other people's eyes when you're speaking to them and having this really obvious computer interface between you and the other person is really kind of off-putting. And it's really off-putting when they start actually using it because they get this kind of glazed look in their eye and they're clearly not engaged with what's going on around you. So to me, it seems like Google Glass tries to interject itself into your interaction, whereas the watch is trying to kind of scuttle out of the way as much as possible. I have heard about people, though, that they start using the Google Watch and then it'll vibrate and nobody picks that up but them. And then they look down at their watch and that's also a cue sometimes that you're ready to move on to something else. Yep. So, yeah, you should be mindful of that as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, anytime I go into a social situation, I have my phone set to no notifications. Yep. Don't be antisocial. That's right. I think if you're wearing Google Glass, it's essentially impossible not to be antisocial because it just kind of interjects itself. And there's the, there's a whole creepy candid camera aspect that it can oh, record yeah. video anytime that is creates another barrier. So I mean, this may be a 1.0 thing, and they may come up with a really clever way to avoid that. But I think the best bet. But this is the only real fashion vector that you can take advantage of for to add more computing to your body without getting really crazily obvious because watches have existed forever. And, you know, watches were the key piece of ambient information when information technology was really primitive. I need to know what time of day it is, so much so that I'll wear it on my wrist all the time. That's a good example of the kind of ambient information that you could deliver back in the 1800s that was valuable. We just have a lot more information we can deliver now. Well, and the thing is, is a lot more, but a lot more related information too. I mean, what time is it and what time do I have to be there and what time am I going to arrive? I mean, all of these things are all related to that one thing and your watch is able to tell you all of that. Mm-hmm. And, even, and much more stuff now, like directions and yeah. you know, being able to pay for stuff and interact with podcasts and uh, TripIt. I'm a big uh, traveler, so TripIt gives me notifications to my watch of gate changes and things like that. Very often... This is true of your phone, too, of course, but you'll get gate notifications through TripIt before the airport gets gate notification changes. So, oh, that's uh, awesome. And, of course, that's much more ambient now because it shows up in your, your wrist rather than you're getting a vibration in your pocket and having to pull this out of your pocket to see what the big deal is about and now it's showing up visually. So are there apps that shouldn't try and push ambient notification to your watch, like games, for example? Yeah, I've done very little gaming on my watch. I think Rules has a, a watch version. I, I literally haven't even tried it yet because I'm not – maybe may be awesome, but I just haven't gotten around to it yet. But, but I think the thing is, and, and I think this is 
different on the watch, much more so than other iOS devices, is that every single person is going to have a completely different set of things they want available ambiently and that they want to be pushed at them. I guess that makes sense. So like teenagers that use their watch or their phone, sorry, for primarily gaming and interacting with their friends, they want text message notifications and they want your friends sent you lives on whatever game because it's all social for them. Whereas somebody like me, you know, I don't want my game bugging me on my watch. I want to know when I'm going to get to where I'm going to get. I want it to remind me when I have something going on. And if an important email or something like that comes in, I want it to tell me. And I think this is one of the really challenging things about selling the Apple Watch for Apple is because that you can't put one on and have it instantly tuned. It will ultimately be super useful to you. It really does take a few weeks of you know experimentation and tuning, and I don't know how they can make that onboarding simpler or easier. I, I think it's the first Apple device I've ever had that really does require a, a manual, which is probably a little bit of UX fail, but I think we're finally getting down to the you know user experience on such a small scale that there's just no way to make things obvious how they work. And there's some little warts about UI stuff that I think they could have done a better job at. But I think this is the most personalizable, by far, device that they've ever created. And I think the real value only comes from this device once you've done a fair amount of personalization work with it. Yeah, I don't know if they could have known that before they actually put it on people's wrists. And so, you know, now they see people using it and, you know, they kind of have better ideas of what people want from it. You know, yeah, they may be able to clean that up some. And sometimes they surprise me at, at how well they're able to get to the heart of some of these issues. Well, I think it was really smart of them to make it so they opened up, you know, pretty much any app that wanted to have an Apple Watch piece could very early on. So they didn't it wasn't very locked down. And I think they've done a pretty good job. Of, I, I think they're hyper aware that the real value of this thing comes with really intense customization. I suspect that they struggle for a while about, you know, how do you sell this thing in a way that is it doesn't take two weeks to configure it to make it useful. And they probably just eventually punted on that because I don't know that you can. But I think this is going to be true. So again, looking at the spectrum of as in, information becomes more ambient, as it becomes more ambient, that means it, it's much more in your face and you're necessarily going to want to customize that more to cut down on the noise factor that you have. So I think that's just a natural consequence of having more ambient information available is the desire to customize it. Yeah. So the other question I have as an Apple Watch user, then what are kind of the trigger behaviors that you can look at and go, oh, I should customize that. I should turn this on, turn this off. Is it mostly that you're getting notifications that you don't care about or are there others? Yeah. I think anytime you get a notification that annoys you, that's a good clue that you should probably go turn that off because it's getting too noisy. So I turned off all email notifications. That's just too much for me because I get so many emails. That just becomes so noisy. It's not useful anymore. I have maybe one very low volume email account that I will wire a notification in for that. But for the most part, I keep those things uh, turned down. Any others that you can think of? Any other things that you should do to customize your watch experience? I don't know how many other people do this, but I use different watch faces for different purposes. So the watch face that I leave up most of the time is the highest information density one because I'm into the information piece, which is the modular one, which has day and date, time, uh, weather, location, sunrise, sunset, activity, and moon phase on it. But I also do a fair amount of speaking at conferences. And when I was speaking at a conference, for some reason, analog clocks work better when I'm trying to judge how much time is left rather than a digital clock. And so I switch it over to a watch face as an analog watch face, but I also put a timer in the upper right-hand corner counting down how much time I have left in the talk. 
So I found that, and the other thing that I find is when I go out with friends, I switch it over to the very low information density watch face, which is just the decorative watch face. Again, toward this idea of trying to be more social, get to a mode where you have less information bombarding you because you're trying to be more interactive with people around you. I actually find that I use three watch faces on a regular basis, and I customize the watch face for the level of interaction I want to have with the watch at that time, depending on the setting I'm in or the people I'm with. I kind of stumbled upon that because I thought I, I realized that when I was doing a talk, at a conference like, you know, it'd be really nice to have a countdown timer going, but I don't want a countdown timer on my watch all the time. And then I realized, well, duh, you dummy, you can have as many watch faces as you want and you can use different watch faces for different purposes. So I don't know how many people are doing that, but I found that to be a really useful thing. So are you setting the timer with Siri? So before you go on, you like set timer for one hour? Yep, Exactly. Set a timer for an hour and 25 minutes because it's a 90-minute talk, and that gives me five minutes of breathing room when my watch starts vibrating. Pro speaker tip right there. That's right. Works great. So are there things that app designers – and we've, we've talked a little bit about this, but are there things that app designers can do then to make their applications more more approachable on the watch? So things like, you know, maybe make it so that you can customize which notifications you get so that instead of turning them on or off in your phone or watch preferences, you actually can go into the app and say, I only want to see email notifications from these email addresses or I only want to get notified of these kinds of events. As I imagine version two of the Apple Watch, one of the things I can imagine is much finer grained ability to do notifications, both from a user and an app developer standpoint. So you're limited now as to things you can actually have show up directly on the face. Although glances, applications can register themselves to show up in the glances, which is kind of the you know the desktop overlay view of things. I think that's more and more customization is going to show up around that. So I think that what Apple, hopefully they're going to do is give you more and more fine grained control over controlling uh, notifications and giving you a variety of different kinds of notifications. I would love for them to expose to app developers five or six different kinds of haptic tapping syntaxes so that a particular watch could tell you, for example, dark skies could give you three taps on your wrist if it's going to rain within a mile of you in the next 20 minutes. So, you know, giving that level of, you know, much more fine-grained notifications, I think, will allow people to tune the applications toward the kind of stuff people want to know about. That, to me, is one of the ways that, that keep enhancing this interaction between the watch and the, and the phone and the person. And you can get an electric shock if like actual tornado within a mile of you. <laughs> We're serious this time. If you go, if you go into a Samsung store, you get a mild jolt. So. <laughs> ow! Dang it! I know. Dang it! Ow! <laughs> Actually, there is a, you can get a pretty good shock with your watch. I had my I was taking my watch off and it somehow short circuit between my ring and something else, and I got a pretty good shock off it. So pretty good battery in there. Yeah, I've been pretty impressed with the battery life. I heard some early reports that the battery was draining really fast. And one day I noticed that my battery was draining really surprisingly fast and I rebooted my watch and that problem went away. So I suspect that's just a 1.0 kind of little glitch somewhere. Yeah. That something was uh, being too chatty with Bluetooth or something. I think I, I ran rebooted my watch. That's not something that you would have expected to say in 1999. Well, yeah, that's, that's welcome to the new world. Like I say, I first got the watch and then I used boarding passes to board a couple of planes and then they stopped showing up for some reason. It's like, huh, that's weird. And it was several days before I even thought, oh, I should reboot my watch and see if that fixes it. And sure enough, that did. So, <laughs> but that's yet another thing in your life. You have to remember to reboot periodically now. They should just make this stuff do it by itself. You know, your Apple Watch reboots every two days. Boom, done. <laughs> 
I think talking about before, I, I want to come back to is the interaction between health data. And I fully expect that by Apple Watch version 5S or whatever it is, that you're wearing a full-blown Star Trek tricorder on your wrist that is wired into your doctor so that, you know, if you start feeling kind of weird, you can call your doctor and say, hey, can you look at my chart and see if something weird is going on in my body right now? So uh, I think, and that has all sorts of interesting implications around security and a bunch of other stuff. If you start Bluetoothing health information back and forth between devices in the air, and, you know, health information is pretty private stuff. In fact, laws cover that. That's going to make the security situation a whole lot more interesting. So that's the other really fascinating aspect of ambient information is how do you secure that information so that it gets to the people that it's supposed to get to and doesn't get to the people that shouldn't see it. And that's a whole other can of worms that we're going to have to to unpack as we go along. seems like prioritizing notifications is going to be an interesting thing for that, too, because you're going to have notifications, you know, so-and-so liked your post on Facebook, and, you know, you just got three coins in whatever game you're playing. And by the way, you have cancer. Yeah. You, you uh, don't want those all to be at the same level. Well, that's a great example of the way that they can improve the user experience is to be able to create classes of notifications and say, you know, in some situations, you know, you could actually have a dial on the face of the watch that says dial upward back how much you want to interact with your watch. And then, you know, depending on the level you set, that notification will either come through or it won't. I think that'd be a nice uh, feature on the watch to say, you know, I'm in a, a wedding turn the notifications completely off versus, you know, I'm sitting around my house bored, turn them up as high as possible. Yeah, that's the interesting challenge over the next few years is to customize how to notify people based on context, who they are, without, you know, requiring them to be a power user to go in there and mess with their notifications because most users are not going to do that. I saw something the other day talking about how there are still pager networks out there and some people, you know, really benefit from them because of coverage and things like that. But one reason was, for example, if you're a doctor and you're on call, if you are on call through your cell phone, you might leave your cell phone plugged in next to your bed, but it's going off all night with stupid nonsense and waking you up for no reason. Whereas if you have a pager, you can turn your phone off and leave your pager on and you're all good. Mm -hmm. So if you had some way to sort of coalesce that and be able to put your phone into a mode that's not silent, but is more of a, uh, you know, important stuff only. That would help a lot, I imagine. I think that's going to be one of the user experience challenges going forward in the interplay between the watch and the phone is exactly how do you build user interfaces that let you specify that kind of stuff without being this nightmare of, you know, scrolly boxes and spinning wheels and that kind of stuff. And I think what we're getting into is a level of user customization that's like an order of magnitude more complex than what we've had before. But again, I think this is a side effect of once you get information to the point of it being as ambient it is now, you've got to be able to tune it. Otherwise, it's very easy for you to get noisy versus useful. There's a really fine line here as it gets very ambient between useful versus noisy. So that's going to be a challenge for application developers for the next few years. But, uh, you know, that, I think it's a good challenge because it's forcing us to rethink the way we interact with things. If you told me five years ago that you could have a really compelling turn-by-turn direction experience on a watch, I would have been skeptical. Or that something like you get something like Siri to work on a watch, even if it is using a phone for most of its computing power. I think the innovations they've already made are really slick, and I'm anxious to see what kind of innovations they're going to make because it's basically the Wild West in terms of possibilities and you know, just ideas we haven't had yet of ways to make that really effective. 
So a lot of people are curious about it. Uh, a huge number of people interrupt me while I'm doing things like in uh, airplanes and places like that to ask me if I like it or not. And I'll save them the effort. I really like it a lot. I'm a fanboy of gadgets, like I suspect most people on this call are. So I knew I was going to get one right away, but uh, I actually ended up liking it more than I thought I would. I was already using a fitness tracker watch before, and this is uh, definitely a step up, up. Not from a fitness tracking standpoint, but definitely from all other kind of interaction standpoint. It very quickly insinuated itself into my kind of daily, hourly, minutely routine, so uh, I use it a lot. I have a friend who was on the fence about getting it, and his final criteria for buying it was, I'm tired of thinking about buying it, and I'll probably eventually get one anyway, so I'm just going to go ahead and get it so I can stop thinking about whether I want to buy it or not. Uh, So he was that kind of on the fence about it, but he's become a huge fan of it ever since getting it. He was wearing a traditional watch. In fact, he was wearing a very nice traditional watch, which I think he was kind of loath to give up because that is one of the few status pieces of clothing a man can wear is an expensive watch. And some men wear that to show off, you know, that status symbol. And so he had to give that up. But he was willing to give that up in favor of the more useful utilitarian Apple Watch. So I think that's a, a good harbinger of things to come. Yeah, I heard about some company who made a two-faced watch where you can have your Rolex and also your Apple Watch. You just wear them on different sides of your wrist. <laughs> if you have way too much money, then that's, that's right. a good product for you. <laughs> well, and it has to be the expensive Apple Watch, too, I'm sure. It's yeah, only, only if it's the edition. If it's not gold, right. it kicks it right out. That's right, yeah. Talking about how walking around a city, staring at your phone, on uh, looking at a map, as Marxy is a tourist, I guess that's sort of a similar thing Marxy was a rich fool, you know. Exactly. Yeah. The, dish, the addition watch pretty much shows that you have more money than a cent. And then if there's a Rolex on the other side, it's just like, you know, yeah, steal it's me. doubling down. That's right. right. <laughs> All right. Well, anything else we should go over before we get into picks? I think that's it for me. That's, uh, that's mostly what I've been thinking about the watch. Like I say, I see this as a, a larger trend of uh, – Information is going to find ways to become more and more ambient, and this is just the latest version. So I'm curious to see what the next version is going to be. Yeah, I, and the thing is, is I know we didn't talk directly about, you know, how to do a lot of this in code or whatever. And, you know, most of it was about the experience and not necessarily about how app developers need to think about this. But I think it's really helpful for people to kind of get into their head, especially developers. You know, this is how people are going to use it. This is how people are going to think about it. And so, you know, these are the kinds of things that you should be considering when you're building your watch apps. Well, it's a completely different paradigm. And I think this paradigm is even more different than the phone paradigm when people started building stuff for it because it is so limited and it has such interesting uh, kind of constraints and uh, abilities as well. Awesome. Well, let's go ahead and get into some picks. Alondo, do you want to start us off with picks? Sure. I have one pick this week, and it is for a program called Remote Year, which I am hoping to participate in in 2016. And it's basically a year which you live in a different city in a different country for a month, 12 months consecutively, but a different city each month. And while you're working, so you're working with other like-minded people who are remote workers, and I'm really looking forward to uh, participating. I'm in the middle of the application process right now, so hopefully I'll be accepted, and I will be on my way to Uruguay in February. That sounds really awesome. I would have to bring an extra six people with me, though, if I did that. I've heard of at least two people going, so I don't know how... I haven't heard of an entire family of that size going yet, though. Yeah. James, what are your picks? All right, I've got one pick, and this is a grandma pick, something your grandma knows how to do, but I've been making homemade chicken broth over the past six months or so, and it's fantastic. It's like one of the healthiest things you can eat, 
And it's simple. It takes about 15 minutes. You know, you just take a chicken carcass, onion, carrot, celery, a little bit of vinegar, and you boil it for 12 hours. And one of the healthiest things you can eat, really good for, like, gut health and things like that, and makes food delicious. Anything you add water to, like a pot roast or something, put a little chicken broth in there, makes it much better. And it's also cool. So I've been reading articles about, like, in New York, people are not going out for coffee, they're going out for chicken broth just for a little healthier treat and stuff like that, bone broth, stuff like that. But I can give it a plus one. It's easy to make and real healthy. And my wife just eats it every day, has a little cup of it and has a little salt. So homemade chicken broth. Your grandma would be so proud. All right. Mike, what are your picks? Well, I'd like to pick this wonderful new search engine I've just discovered. It's called Google. It's way better than AltaVista. And wait a minute. <laughs> We're not in 1999 anymore, are we? <laughs> uh, okay. For real, two things today. Uh, Adafruit is a website where you can buy all sorts of cool electronics. I don't know how many people uh, who listen to the show get into that kind of thing, but there seems to be a pretty big overlap between regular like iOS programmers and uh, people who mess around with other electronics, microcontrollers, Arduinos, that kind of thing. They've got a great selection there, lots of help getting started, things like that. I just bought a little GPS module from them the other day, which uh, cost me a mere 30 bucks and has all sorts of cool features and is really easy to hook up and use. The other pick, which is vaguely related, uh, is the Soaring Society of America. Some people might know that I fly gliders. It's a lot of fun, and if you're ever interested in aviation, it's a surprisingly economical way to get into it. And it's, I say it's vaguely related because I bought that GPS module as part of trying to build out some uh, electronics t- as a flying aid. But uh, it's a lot of fun, and I definitely recommend it. Where do you get a glider from, or do you just rent one? I purchased one from another member of my club. They, um, the, the major manufacturers these days are in Germany. Um, other, uh, there's some places in Eastern Europe that make them, and uh, there's, I think, one or two American manufacturers right now. But the kind I fly are basically full-scale airplanes with no motor, so they're, not, um, no, they're, they're basically airplane manufacturers. Oh, interesting. So do you have to have an airplane to take you up? No, I'm really curious. Yes, yes. You need some some sort of assistance to launch. The way we typically do it in the United States is with a uh, powered airplane and a rope that takes you to altitude. Then you release the rope and you're on your own. There are also techniques you can use with a winch on the ground that launches you. And some crazy people will even just sort of push it off the side of a hill if they've got a suitable location. But that's kind of uncommon. Interesting. Now I'm going to spend all day looking at glider planes online. (laughs) All right, I've got a couple of picks here. I'm going to pick something that I've been using for quite a while. I've probably picked it on the show before, but I just, I love it. It's my Jambox XT. It's uh, slightly larger than the Jambox, I think it was Pro or whatever. I think it's Jam Pop, not Jambox, I don't remember. But I'll put a link to it in the show notes. It's kind of the cylindrical external Bluetooth speaker, and I listen to podcasts and music on it while I'm coding, just because... Sometimes I don't feel like having my headphones on, and it's super awesome. So I'm going to pick that. And then I've also gotten into this show. It's kind of a guilty pleasure. It's Orphan Black. It's on BBC America, so you can go check that out. I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. And finally, I am looking into doing an iOS remote conference. As, as some of you may know, I'm doing one right now, putting one on for Angular and uh, it's getting a lot of traction. People are pretty excited about it. And so I'm thinking about doing the same thing for iOS. I've probably mentioned that on the show before too. But if you're interested, just shoot me an email, chuck at devchat.tv or at Twitter. I'm cmaxw on Twitter. And just let me know that you're interested. And if I get, you know, if I probably get 10 to 20 people saying they're interested, I can probably sell enough tickets to make it worth it. So anyway, uh, Neil, what are your picks? 
Uh, let's see, I've been doing a lot of reading this year. So uh, the new Steel, Neil Stevenson book, Seven Eves, is really great. It's a really good, uh, if you like Neil Stevenson, uh, very much a return to form. Also, uh, Kathy Sarah's latest book, uh, Badass Making Users Awesome, is a typical Kathy Sarah book, meaning it's uh, typically awesome. And talking about Bluetooth speakers, I have uh, the Bose SoundLink 2 speakers that I carry on the road with me. is way better than listening to sound over crappy laptop speakers, even for uh, videos and things like that. So uh, that and the Beats 2 head, uh, Bluetooth headset, I mentioned those. Those are the newest improvement in my travel life. I tried Bluetooth uh, headsets when they first came out, and I was super disappointed, and I just went back to these, and I've been super impressed with them. Awesome. All right. Well, people want to follow up with you or ThoughtWorks or anything else that you're involved in. Uh, what are the best places to go? My website is just my name, neilford.com, N-E-A-L-F-O-R-D.com. I have a blog entry on there called Ambient Information, which is uh, some of the stuff I was talking about here today. My email address is there as well. And uh, at ThoughtWorks, you can reach me at nford at thoughtworks.com. All right. Well, I guess we'll wrap up the show. Thank you for coming. My pleasure. Uh, we'll catch everyone next week. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Would you like to join a conversation with the iFreaks and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a form that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. You can sign up at iFreakShow.com slash forum.